Good morning, church. How's everyone doing? That's like the third welcome this morning, man. You guys are welcomed out. Well, you guys, uh, thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. You guys uh, look like you are glowing with anticipation. That may be sweat still uh, dripping off your face and reflecting in the stage lights. Either way, you look great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move us over here just a little bit. Well, if you walked in and you heard Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers singing, I Won't Back Down, don't worry, you are in the right place. Tom Petty uh, looks like he maybe had a little bit of uh, facial work done. He cut his hair. I don't know. Andrew, do we have that picture that you can throw up there? Yeah, they, they're looking good. Looking good. If you're wondering, that song is from 1989. Probably some of you weren't even alive by then. That was it. Well, and I was eight, so. And to be clear, I will, I promise, circle back and connect the dots on why we started with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers this morning. This week, as been mentioned, we are continuing in our series on the life of David. And last week, Isaac uh, did an absolutely phenomenal job with a message reminding us that the, about the relationships that shape our lives and, and reminding us that the trajectory of our lives are influenced by the people that we surround ourselves with. And he reminded us that while we might be a shepherd boy out in the pasture, if we know Jesus, we are headed to the palace. And Isaac, I don't think, is here today, but... I, when you do listen to the podcast, I just want to tell you that as you were speaking last week and you were reminding us about the people that we surround ourselves with, I was hearing this voice in the back of my head. It was my mother speaking, saying, you are who you run with. Thank you for that trip down memory lane, Isaac. Well, as, as has been mentioned before in the previous two weeks about the, the character and who David was, it's worth mentioning again. David was the eighth son of Jesse. He was a, a shepherd's boy and a warrior. He was a poet and a musician. He was a loyal friend to Jonathan. And David was the king. And David was a man after God's own heart. But as that description indicates, David was just a man. And so therefore, he did have flaws. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 17 this week. That is where we're going to spend our time. Now, here's where we're going to encounter one of the most popular stories in the Bible. A story so popular, in fact, that even if you've never been to church, you probably know it and maybe even could recount it with stunning accuracy. A story so popular and ubiquitous in our Christian culture that as I was preparing for this message, I had this thought. It occurred to me that I don't know that I've ever read a children's Bible that doesn't have this story in it. And what's not to love about this story? It has everything that you need in an awesome story. It has drama and suspense. It has a larger-than-life enemy, both figuratively and literally. It has an underdog main character, and it has violence. You always got to have violence. <laughs> and of course, we're talking about David and Goliath. So because the story is so 
um, ingrained in our culture. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going over the story, but I do want to level set with some details, some high-level details about the story as we go on. So as Isaac had shared last week, the people of Israel had been uh, ruled by a series of judges, and they had been clamoring for a king. And so God finally tells Samuel, go and anoint Saul to be the king. And so Samuel goes and he anoints Saul. And Saul does okay for a very short amount of time before he starts messing up, particularly disobeying the direction that both Samuel and specifically God had given him. And so God says, all right, we're done with that. We're moving on. Samuel, you need to go anoint a new king. And so Samuel goes to the home of Jesse and anoints David. And between the point that David is anointed and the point that he becomes king is where we catch up and find the story of David and Goliath. So to bring us up to speed, the army of the Philistines and the army of Israel are about ready to do battle. They are camped out on opposite sides of a hillside, and there's not been any fighting yet, but every morning as the sun comes up, as the light starts to cast its gaze upon the valley, there is a Philistine warrior that has made his way down to the valley floor, likely where there's a, a creek flowing. I just envision it as this wide valley where both armies can see each other. And every morning Saul comes out and he's greeted with this same thing, a giant down in the valley mocking him and his God. The two armies, as I said, are in the valley of Ella. And this valley spans down in between the two of them. And I just have this vision of Goliath coming out, walking down to the valley floor, insulting both Saul and his army and his God, calling them cowards, insulting them, mocking them, spitting in their direction probably, kicking dust in their direction, maybe doing other things in their direction, who knows. The, in 1 Samuel 17, it tells us that Goliath was stood over nine foot tall and weighed over 125 pounds. And so this mocking goes on day after day for 40 days. Goliath saying, your God is not powerful enough to save you from me. And for 40 days, day after day, this goes on with no answer from Saul or his army. And many of us know the rest of the story. David is sent to the front lines by his father Jesse with rations for his brothers. Not yet old enough to join the army himself, so he's at least younger than 16. He gets to the front lines and sees this Goliath down in the valley, mocking not only his people, but his God. And so he takes it upon himself to end the spectacle once and for all. And in verse 48, it tells us that David ran quickly to meet Goliath, reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone. He hurled it with a sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead, and the stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. Now here's where I want us to pause for just a moment. Before we go any further, I want you to dig around in your memory bank, dust off some old memories. I want you to think about the first time you heard the story of David and Goliath. 
For many of you, it was probably in kids' church or Sunday school. You were likely little lads or lattices, impressionable and innocent. Likely sitting on a carpet square in uncomfortable clothes, listening to some old person tell you about some other old dead person, thinking that you wished you could do anything other than pay attention to this story. That wasn't your experience? That was my experience, so we're going to roll with that version. But then, out of the aromatic fog of Nilla wafers and dusty, musty basement smells <laughs> comes a story that captures your young imagination. A story that makes you sit up straight on your carpet square and pay attention with intensity not commonplace for Sunday school. <laughs> this is when you heard the story of a small shepherd's boy who goes forward with confidence and with a slingshot kills a Goliath, kills a giant when no one else in the army of Saul will do anything and all of them are shaking in their sandals. This is when you heard your Sunday school teacher probably tell you something like this, painting this epic tale of battle. And he or she probably suggested or encouraged you that you too can kill the giants in your life all you need to do is be more like David. But here's what I want us to ask ourselves. Was there anything in the story of David and Goliath that you originally thought to be true or some fact or detail that as you got older, later in life, you thought, oh, I had that detail wrong. Is there any point that you were like, oh, that makes more sense. Well, there was for me. There was one detail that I misunderstood. From the time that I was probably five or six, which is probably about when I heard the story for the first time and had some comprehension of what the story was about, I thought David killed Goliath with a slingshot. And he did, but not the type of slingshot that I had in my mind. You see, the type of slingshot that I had in my mind was one of these. You might have had something similar as a small child, something that your grandpa fashioned out of a stick in the backyard and tied a couple cut rubber bands to. Never mind that rubber wasn't invented for a few thousand years after the story of David and Goliath. <laughs> but it wasn't until later on in my life that I realized David didn't kill one of these, but instead one of these. That is the slingshot that David used, or one similar. A small detail, but that makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Historians tell us that that slingshot at close range has the power of a 45 caliber pistol. Slightly more powerful than this. Is there anything about the story that you had wrong? Any detail? that as you got older and started to understand the nuances of the story of David and Goliath, that you went, oh, that makes more sense. Well, there is an even bigger detail that I believe that most of us have gotten wrong for many years. 
I know I'm guilty of this. And based on the plethora of messages that I've sat through and probably you've sat through on David and Goliath, you probably have this detail wrong. This is a critically important detail about the story that we have gotten wrong for far too long. The story of a shepherd's boy walking out with extreme confidence and killing a giant does not point to his own power, but instead to someone much greater. Picture this. You're at church. You're hearing a message on David and Goliath. The preacher or speaker or leader at the conference that you're at is getting you all fired up, right? Telling you this story, this amazing tale. And he says or she says something along the lines, come on. David was barely 15 years old, maybe at best, and he wins one of the biggest victories of his life. And David only took up his sling and marched out onto the battlefield and took down his Goliath. And all you have to do is the same thing. All you have to do is be more like David. Have you heard that message before? I think probably we have. And we leave the church or we leave the conference and we say things like, yeah, I can do this. I can beat Goliath. I can take down this giant. I just need to be more like David. Well, folks, this is where we have the story wrong. This is the plot twist. This is where I'm going to ruin it for you. We are not David in the story of David and Goliath. I'll say it again. We are not David in the story of David and Goliath. You want to know who David is in the story of David and Goliath? Jesus. Jesus is David in the story of David and Goliath. Jesus is the giant slayer. Jesus is the one who fearlessly walks out onto the battlefields of our lives and lays waste to the giants. Jesus fights the battles for us. Jesus stares down the face of impossible odds. And Jesus confronts the one that mocks us every morning when the sun comes up and we hear the lies thrown at us. The giants in our lives have fallen not because of anything that we have done, not because we picked up the sling and walked out onto the battlefield, but because Jesus did it for us. So, I wasn't necessarily sure if I was going to share this because I'm going to tell you something. It's going to ruin your day. You're going to be upset when I tell you this, but I ha- I, we got to talk about it. You want to know who you are in the story and who I am in the story? We are Saul in the story. We are Saul in the story of David and Goliath, paralyzed with fear, too scared to make even some of the most basic decisions, hoping and praying every morning when we wake up that anyone, someone, will march out onto the valley floor and take care of the giant in our lives. And we all have these Goliaths. These giants, lies that have been whispered, often shouted at us every morning that we wake up, conversations that we have in our hearts and in our minds, telling us that we'll never succeed, that 
whatever we're trying to accomplish will never succeed, that our addictions will never go away, that our marriages will never be restored, that that sickness will never go away. Every day, the lies and the insults are shouted. But here's the thing. We need to fix our eyes, not on the size of our Goliath, but on the size of our God. We serve a God who spoke the heavens and earth into existence, who made the moon and the stars, who commands the lame to walk and the blind to see, and who raises the dead to life. Do we not honestly believe that he has the power to conquer the Goliaths in our life? At first you may think, I don't know if I have any Goliaths. Well, let me ask you this. Do you struggle with fear or perfectionism or rejection? How about control or self-doubt or anger or substance abuse or any addiction for that matter? (coughs) Facebook, lust, comfort, complacency. What I'm trying to get to is that as I was preparing this message and looking at my own life, it only took me a few minutes to realize that I had two big giants in my life that I had been quietly ignoring, similar to Saul in the army, just kind of hoping that if, we didn't, if I didn't do anything, maybe he would just go away. Maybe they would just go away. And those were giants of perfectionism and even bigger self-doubt. And every morning in my own life as the sun rose, I would hear these giants mocking me spewing lies and shouting their taunts at me that I would never be able to accomplish or be the person that God had called me to be. Recently, I've been sharing this story with Heidi about a guy that I stumbled across on social media. I have no idea why, but this guy was out walking in the woods one day with his dog and found a pup coyote and for some unbeknownst reason, decided it would be wise to take it home. And so he's been posting pictures of him and his family with this pup coyote, and I'll be the first to tell you, he's cute. He's real cute. He's got these pointy ears and cute tail, and he's running around just being mischievous like puppies are. But over the past few weeks and and month or so, this coyote started to grow up. And I keep asking myself as I kind of stumble across his page, surely this guy knows that this is a wild animal. Surely this guy knows that at some point this coyote is going to be fully grown and he's going to have matured into the wild animal that he is. He's not going to be a lapdog. And heaven forbid anything happen to the other animals in his home, or his family, or his kids, because this wild animal is going to do what wild animals do. The same is true about Goliath, right? Goliath wasn't born a nine-foot-tall dude, and if he was, I feel real bad for his mom. (laughs) No, Goliath was probably born a cute little baby. You know, a baby. (laughs) And then he grew into a vile, nasty, violent killer. I think the same is true of the Goliaths in our lives, the giants in our lives, the habits and the behaviors, 
the faulty beliefs, the lies that we hear and believe every morning. They probably didn't start that way. If they had, we would have rejected them immediately, right? They probably started out as something small or endearing or maybe cute. And then as it grew up, became the violent killer that it is. I know that's the case for me, speaking openly. My biggest giant is self-doubt. Every morning, hearing the lies of, you're probably not good enough to do that. You probably don't have the skills or the calling to accomplish that. You're definitely not the leader that you should be for your family. And self-doubt didn't start out as self-doubt. The best I can figure self-doubt started is a desire to not be in the limelight and a desire to not have the focus on myself and the desire to not have a spirit of pride and a desire to be humble. And those are all admirable things that started out small, but as they got older and matured, they morphed into this violent, nasty giant in my life of self-doubt. I'm guessing that many of you have giants in your life similar, similar experiences. And I know some of you do because we're praying through some of those giants with some of you in this room. Giants, and I do not want to belittle them or minimize them. They are big giants in your life. But here's what I know. No matter how big the giant in our lives, our Jesus is bigger. And what I know is, is that Jesus is on our side and he's fighting for you and he's fighting for me and he has already won. And that's not hype. It's not rhetoric. It is, in fact, Jesus has defeated every foe. And he's inviting you and me every day to come see what he has already done. You see, the ultimate defense in defeating a giant is leaning into the all-sufficiency of Jesus. That's a really big word that has a lot of religious connotations and it's a little bit off-putting. I'll be the first to agree. But what it means is, is that Jesus is sufficient in everything. He is not deficient in anything. Jesus is enough. He is all we need to fulfill the greatest purposes in our life. And that includes taking down Goliath. He is fully capable, fully competent and most importantly he is fully willing we started out with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and I as I had mentioned already I was eight years old when that song came out and as an eight-year-old I was not exposed to worship music like we have here at Church 214 we went to church, and so my exposure to worship was hymns. And I'll be, again, the first to admit, I never really connected with that style of music. Probably for lots of different reasons. But one of the things that when I heard this song, I can still remember to this day, sitting in the backseat of my mom's car, hearing this song come on, and in the first few sentences, the lyrics say, you can stand me up, at the gates of hell and I won't back down. In a world that keeps on pushing me around, I will not back down. And let me tell you, none of us 
want to stand up in front of the gates of hell by ourselves, under our own power, but through Jesus that we can. And so I think as a, the status is of Tom Petty with his relationship with Jesus, but what I do know is that if you look for it, there are truths throughout all of creation, whether it's a secular song, a worship song, a movie, all throughout culture, God weaves his truth throughout his creation. So here's the takeaway. Here's what you need to leave with today. Jesus is the giant killer and the victory belongs to him. Let me put it this way. Jesus went to the cross and put an end to death and to sin and Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus has overcome our sins, our inequities, our fears, and especially our giants. And when we turn to ourselves to be the giant killers, when we say, I can do this by myself, alone, I don't need you, Jesus, what we're saying is what you did on the cross, Jesus, isn't enough. What we're saying is you went to the cross to permanently put all of this to bed, but not my giant because my giant's too big. As I close today, I'm going to share a story with you from the book, Goliath Must Fall, and some of the content that came from this message is from that book, and I would encourage you, if you are struggling with a giant today, if you have a giant in your life that you just simply cannot defeat, that you wake up every morning and it's still there 40 days, day after day, it's there, I would encourage you to read this book. It will give you a fresh new perspective but in the book, Louis goes on to tell a story about him and his childhood friend, Pastor Anley Stanley. And during the summer, they both had the opportunity to be at a, at a church camp, at a summer camp. And so they would go off into the South Carolina woods where this camp was held. And one of their responsibilities was to kill off the snakes, the poisonous snakes that surrounded the camp. And so one of the ways that they would do that is they would, they would pour lime around the cabins and the buildings because lime's a natural deterrent for snakes. But when that failed, it gave them a perfect opportunity to head out into the woods with a flashlight and a machete and kill them themselves. And so that's what Louie and Andy would do. At night, after the campers would go to bed, they would head out into the tall grass and search for poisonous snakes. And in the story, he says some of the snakes were as long as four or five feet long. And they would find these snakes. They would catch them. And once they would catch them, they would take the machete and they would cut the head clean off. I don't know if you've ever killed a snake, but we, if you do this, if you cut the head clean off, the body will still slither and move around even though the head has been completely cut off. And so they would throw the snake's body down and it would move all around and slither and just be repulsive. But here's the thing. Even though the head had been completely cut off, it was still poisonous. If someone were to step on the head, it could still bite them. It could still poison them. It could still harm them, possibly kill them. And that's the thing. The snake was dead, but he was still dangerous. 
And so what Louis and Andy would do is they would bury the snake's head deep in the sandy soil to prevent anyone from accidentally stepping on the head. You see, if we go back to the story of David and Goliath, David marches down into the valley floor and he gets his slingshot out and he hits Goliath in the head and Goliath falls. And David, at that point, could have said, it's done. He could have shouted up at the Philistine camp and and said, hey, I killed your giant. That's what you wanted. That was the agreement. Whoever kills the giant wins the battle. Could have shouted, hey, I'm done here. I'm just going to go back up to my side of the hill. But he didn't. David marches over to Goliath, pulls the sword out, and cuts his head clean off to make certain that David had killed Goliath. And this is what Jesus has done. Jesus could have absolutely come to earth, performed his ministry, healed the sick, the lame, and the blind, turned the religious community upside down on its head, walked on water, and then when it was all done said, hey, my ministry's done here. I'm going back to heaven. But he didn't. It wasn't done yet. It wasn't done until Jesus went to the cross. The redemption of the world and all of God's people was not done until Jesus severs the head of Satan by going to the cross, dying that brutal death, an unjust death, and raising to life. That is when it was done. In the story of David and Goliath, Jesus is David. Jesus is the one who has conquered all of our giants. Jesus is the one who boldly goes, unencumbered by fear, down into the valley floor. And he confronts any fear, any guilt, any addiction or habit that the enemy of Satan has placed in our life. And Jesus, only Jesus, has the power to overcome these giants. When I think about that valley floor, every morning, I cannot imagine Saul every morning for 40 days, waking up before it's light, rustling in his camp. I don't know if he drank coffee, but if he did, he probably made some coffee. And he would go and stand on the cliff and talk to his men and say, any word from the giant today? And for 40 days, the answer was yes. For 40 days, the mocking giant would come out and insult him and mock him and belittle him and his God. But I think in our lives, those mornings when we wake up and the sun rises above the valley, I'm not talking about the S-U-N, I'm talking about the S-O-N, and shines down on the valley. And we say to ourselves, is there anyone, is there anyone 
who will come and kill this giant? Is there anyone that will stop the mocking and the insults? Is there anyone that will do this? We beg and we plead, anybody, please come. And the answer is, resoundingly from Jesus, not only I will, but I have. Will you pray with me? Father God, we pray that in the battle of our lives, Lord, that we would become less and that you would become more. Lord, you have made a way in the battlefields of our lives. You and you alone are the giant slayer. You have cut the head off of the snake and you have put to death sin in our lives. You have put the mocker, the liar, the insulter in his place, Lord. And because of you, when the morning comes, we have a new life confident of who we are and whose we are. Father God, we thank you for what you've done on the cross. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for taking our sins, Lord. Thank you for being the one to bear our burden, our inequities. Lord, and we thank you that because of you, we are made new. In your name we pray, amen.